welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some of your favorite people from Philadelphia come together to talk about all things movies. My name is Connor, and I'm joined today by my buttery co-hosts, Sam, Christine, and Dave. Um, It's interesting for me to kind of round out a month. Usually I'm kind of in the beginning of our monthly cycle, so it's always a treat to be the one to close out a month. And with a movie I am particularly excited about um, when we thought about you know, kind of discussing magical movies. Uh, this movie was one of the first ones that came to mind for me, and that is uh, Magic Mike. Sorry, Channing Tatum. And, no, I'm just kidding. Ah, uh, the magic. Ah, uh, uh, the ma- the magic of, of abs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how's everybody doing? Has anybody seen anything lately? Anything noteworthy, exciting, worthy of discussion? I've seen nothing, but Connor, you saying, uh, what would you call us, our buttery pals? I was like, oh, greasy pals, too. I feel like that's me almost all the time. Um, So thank you for that. I have nothing to add. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Dave or Christine, anything that you've been watching recently? Well, I made it out to the theater for my last, um, last 2021 movie. Uh, I think I've gotten all of the things that I wanted to get off the docket, except for maybe uh, Last Duel. I do still want to check that out. But uh, I did get to see Tragedy of Macbeth at the Ritz, that the new Joel Cohen movie, an adaptation of, of course, Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth. I went into it with really, really high expectations. Um, you know, uh, Joel is uh, is one of my guys. Joel and Ethan as a pair have been uh, my guys for a while, as well as Anderson. I did go to see it uh, a little bit loosened up, let's say, and uh, probably should not have because it is a very faithful adaptation of Shakespearean language, which I am not very knowledgeable or cultured about. Uh, I think, Connor, you will have a much easier time with this than I did because a good portion of the movie, I was just kind of staring at the screen like, I'm a dummy. But visually, it's amazing. The, the performances are spectacular. McDormand knocks it out of the park. Um, uh, Denzel Washington turns in one of the one of the best performances of his career, and uh, Kath, uh, I believe her name is Catherine Hunter, playing all three of the witches, is one of the most terrifying performances I've ever seen. So it's it's really a very grim and very uh, very uh, very dark interpretation of an already dark uh, play uh, brought brought to life with some stunning cinematography and some really innovative sets. Uh, some of the ways that like things are captured, like the night sky feels wholly unique. Like I've never seen anything quite like it in a film. So I, I really appreciated it. I would say it's extremely effective, but not that affecting unless you have a big investment in the material. So I think Connor, you're really gonna dig it. Although it does, it does uh, cut out uh, some essential plot points that makes things a little bit confusing uh, via my memory of Macbeth. So it's it's a unique interpretation, but a very unique film nonetheless that I really like. I'm glad to hear you liked it, and I, I haven't checked it out yet. Um, hopefully, in the next couple of days or next week, I'll be able to go see it. Or if not, I'll just borrow. I think my mom has Apple Plus and just watch it at home. Yeah, I think it's coming out like next week on Apple Plus. Yeah. Uh, the I had mentioned last week I have not been watching anything, and it pretty much goes for this week as well. I did watch Casablanca uh, only because We Hate Movies just did an episode. That's a great episode. It's like, so good. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll. I haven't listened to the episode, but uh, my friends and I watched Casablanca. I have nothing to add to the discourse. It's Casablanca, you know, like, but it'll be 
interesting to see sort of what a comedian movie reviewer's take is on it. I will say though that Paul on Reed, who plays Victor Laszlo, is like my new uh, old timey actor crush. He's like <laughs> in the whole movie. Forget Humphrey Bogart. Like no, no, no. It's the guy who plays Victor is a Laszlo. He's like a through and through solid guy, and he's fucking hot. So that's all I have to add to the Casablanca movie discourse. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that. Uh, I forgot that I watched a 2021 movie back in December, and I forgot to say that I watched it, and that was Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, starring Andrew Garfield, uh, Netflix Academy Award hopeful. Um, I thought it was really good. I don't like Rent, but I can appreciate Rent, which Larson did, you know, Jonathan Larson, who Andrew Garfield plays. Um, did several years after his one-man show, Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, I thought the film was pretty phenomenal. I'd be curious to hear other people's perspectives who are not really in the know of, like, Broadway musical theater world. Um, but I thought, without a doubt, Andrew Garfield delivered, like, a stunning performance. It's interesting knowing that Larson dies before Rent opens, like, days before, uh, or right at the opening. So it sort of has, like, a, a fatalistic tone, which is... I don't think the intention of like the script, but that's just how it is because that's the way the world ended up losing him so early. So it's interesting. I definitely recommend it. It's on Netflix. Um, and it was super interesting and the music was really good. Connor, I also saw it and um, I can't remember how much I told you about the friend that I lost last year, but um, she was obsessed with Rent when we were younger. Um, she she loved Rent and Anthony Rapp. She, she, she just, it was everything to her. And I think like she wrote papers and things about it too. And um, I just could not help but think about her when I watched Tick, Tick, Boom. Mm -hmm. And I think the opening number is a song called 3090. And it's all about turning 30 in uh, 1990, which Jonathan Larson did. And there are so many lines in there. I know she would have just loved. And it really made me upset that she didn't live to see it, uh, particularly because she died like five days before her 30th birthday from COVID. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that like it, it just it really hit home for me. So that was a movie that like I'm not too much into the Broadway scene. So I didn't think that I was going to really get struck by this movie. But I just like listened to the soundtrack and wept for days. <laughs> so it is it is very, very good, even if you're a not Broadway person like me. Yeah, it definitely reminds it reminded me of some folks, you know, of Lost too. And um yeah, it's it's a great film and that's a really uh an interesting perspective to watch that movie with. All right, well let's dive into our finale, the prestige of our month, maybe I should say. <laughs> um we are talking about Christopher Nolan's 2006, in my mind, classic, um, the prestige. This is the first Nolan movie that we're covering on the podcast, but he's someone who we've probably, I believe we've talked about uh, quite a bit. Christine, before we started recording, you mentioned that maybe it's best if we don't overanalyze Christopher Nolan's movies. Uh, but that's what we're doing today with uh, one of his most complicated, for sure, structurally, um, but probably my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Uh, definitely the one that I have seen the most. This is probably my fifth or sixth time watching it. 
Um, but before we sort of get into all that, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Prestige, sort of here's the Wikipedia breakdown. Uh, the Prestige is a 2006 mystery thriller film directed by Christopher Nolan, written in collaboration. His you know, often collaborator, Jonathan Nolan, his brother. It's based on a 1995 novel of the same name by Christopher Priest. And it follows, the film follows Robert Angier and Alfred Borden, who are rival stage magicians in London, uh, in Edwardian England at the end of the 19th century. Uh, they are obsessed with creating the best stage illusions and they engage in competitive um, one-man-upship with fatal results. Directed by Christopher Nolan, written by him and his brother. Uh, cinematography was by his frequent collaborator, Wally Fister, I believe is how you pronounce that. Mm -hmm. um, starring Hugh Jackman as Robert Angier, Christian Bale as Alfred Borden, our two main magicians. Um, a great turn from Michael Caine as Mr. Cutter, who sort of designs illusions. Um, Rebecca Hall as Sarah Borden, Scarlett Johansson as Olivia Wenscombe, David Bowie as Nikola Tesla, and Andy Serkis as his sort of assistant, Mr. Alley. Um, to say that the cast is stacked is to put it lightly. Um, there are a lot of really good people in this film. Had a budget of about $40 million and a global box office total of $109 million. Um, so definitely a box office hit. Uh, critical reception uh, was interesting to look up. It currently on Rotten Tomatoes has a 76 critical review and 91% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes with IMD, with a uh, Metacritic, I believe somewhere in the low seventies. So I didn't quite realize how divisive this movie was because in my, you know, our friend group, this was always a pretty popular movie, but among critics, um, not, you know, one of Nolan's most popular. I believe it's his lowest rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Until Interstellar came out with 71%. Uh, so Interstellar is currently Nolan's, um, according to Rotten Tomatoes, which, you know, take it or leave it, um, sits at 71%. Kind of, you know, critically divisive, but for me, this is a movie that I um, really enjoy. I've revisited numerous times. When thinking about Magic Month, this was one uh, that popped to mind for me, as I mentioned. And we are dealing with magicians themselves and even conversations around, you know, what is magic and the purpose of magic and how magic fits into our society. Um, I was drawn to this movie from performances and characters, from the structure of this movie, period elements, and there are a whole lot of themes. This movie is juggling a lot, and I'm sure we'll talk about the success to which um, Chris and John writing the movie handle it or don't handle it. But before we get any further, um, who has uh, Sam, Christine, or Dave, have any of you seen The Prestige before uh, filming this episode? For no. this episode? Uh, I've seen it before. I thought I had seen it, and then I only... I feel like this happens to me a lot. It's like the ending. I was like, oh, shit, yes. <laughs> but I'll more on that later because... Well, actually, I'll just talk about it right now. For me... The two movies that came out in 2006 that were magic <laughs> movies were The Prestige and The Illusionist. And I always remember it was like NSYNC versus Backstreet Boys. You were either Team Illusionist or you were Team The Prestige. And I was always Team Illusionist. Well, I watched half of The Illusionist and I think I will <laughs> have to say that I have changed teams. <laughs> so, spoiler alert about how I felt about The Prestige. The Illusionist was a snooze fest and the prestige I thought, yeah, was, was way better. And yeah, I was riveted at every turn 
And so I was like, I feel like I've seen this because I knew all of the, I knew the ending and the big reveals, but it really felt like I was watching it for the first time. I'm so glad you brought up that illusionist story because I made a mistake back in must have been 2007 where when Netflix came on discs in the mail, I wanted to watch the prestige, but accidentally ordered the illusionist and was very disappointed when I fired it up uh, or saw the disc and put it as like, Oh, this is not the movie I wanted. Watched it anyway. Um, was very disappointed later on, got the correct disc and um, everything was right with the world again. So, Sam, I want to get your perspective on The Prestige as somebody who's new to this film but familiar with other Nolan films. Uh, what did you think of The Prestige as a first-time viewer? So, first, I just need to say this about Christopher Nolan. I do not understand why everyone's always like, I didn't understand it. It was so confusing. What the fuck? Are we watching the same things? I Like, I don't know what it is, but I'm just like, I understand. I I guess the endings before it happens. I don't know if that just makes me like a simple-minded person because I'm just like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I'm not like reading like the 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 many different layers apparently these films have, or they're just not as fucking deep as people like to say that they are. Anyway, regardless, I've got a lot of feelings about Christopher Nolan and also how people feel about Christopher Nolan. Anyway, um, yeah, I I actually really enjoyed this movie despite everything I just fucking said. Um, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it and talking to people about it. Um, today at work, I just asked our friend Damon, I was like, hey, have you seen The Prestige? And he was like, oh yeah, Ed Norton. <laughs> God damn the illusion. <laughs> so it is very clearly something that everyone does. Um, really, really enjoyed it. Um, was not surprised at all by the end. Very much enjoyed seeing Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman together and um, riffing off of each other on screen. Um, I didn't know I was going to enjoy it that much. So thank you, Connor. I'm super glad I saw this. Oh, yay. <laughs> glad you liked it, Sam. Um, Dave or Christine, thoughts on revisiting it this time? Uh, for me, this is a fun movie to revisit. I feel like I always pick up new things so um what was it like kind of rewatching it for the pot I, I would say that like well as we've covered by by contrast you know 2006 what a magical year uh i did also go back and rewatch the illusionist the other day before watching this one one of my housemates happened to be walking through and said you're watching the illusionist and i was like well yeah because i'm gonna watch this other one um, and then the next day, as I was watching The Prestige, they happened to pass through yet again. And this time offered, oh, you're watching the good magician movie today. <laughs> Which I tend to agree with. Uh, I don't want to you know, dive into it too much or hate on it too much. But The Illusionist, yeah, is a real snore. Ed Norton is asleep at the switch, as he is in, I'd say, at least a third of his career. But uh, in this one in particular, really, you're getting nothing from him. And he's kind of the central thing. And also Paul Giamatti's like cackling revelation at the end, which is just like, <laughs> that brilliant trick. I'm an officer of the law and a man was framed. <laughs> I mean, when Very Paul strange. Giamatti is breathing life into every scene, you know that the movie is is uh not of a not very good because oh, I, I was love, like in I contrast PG, yes in contrast though you're like and you know what i don't want to hate on paul giamatti there are many movies and roles of his that i've thoroughly enjoyed but definitely when he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with 
Edward Norton, you're like, wow, Paul Giamatti is so, uh, has such gravitas. <laughs> <laughs> He's not even the magician. Uh, but as concerns the actual movie we were talking about, The Prestige, yeah, I'd seen it ages ago, and I saw it, uh, interestingly enough, Sam, this kind of relating to what you were talking about, I saw it before the, like, Nolan craze, or before, like, the Nolan brand was established as several consistent things, like always manipulating chronology, manipulating reality and unreality, um, supposedly extremely deep and involved stories and so on. Which I think he he sometimes, you know, sometimes he'll get a hole in one on those and sometimes he slices right into the woods. Uh, this one, I thought at the time of seeing it, it really blew my mind and I, I had no idea where things were going. But watching it again, I think that's in part because the first time I was struggling to piece together the chronology because this, like a lot of Nolan movies, is kind of a pastiche of time cuts where we're experiencing like the middle of the story and now the beginning and now the the end and like it, it jumping around a lot. And I found that once that's diffused with multiple viewings, then all of the foreshadowing that appeared to be really insightful and interesting the first time feels really obvious, which I have some notes on. But on the whole, I, I do really enjoy this movie. I would say I've it's been diminishing returns a little bit each time, but I still enjoy it. I used to think it was hand over fist Nolan's best work. I now am second guessing that a little bit, but I think that uh, the themes that it tackles and the way that it tackles them through some really captivating performances is, is pretty great. Even if it's execution is perhaps a little bit too, I don't know, uh, overly abstract or, or, or like overly showy and it is commitment to a fractured timeline. I'm happy you brought all those points up, Dave, because this for me feels like a slippery slope of Chris Nolan going too far and having too much power in what is mm. how his movies are structured and, and written. Um, I think Tenet is a confusing mess of a film. I think that movie totally falls apart in almost every way. And so this, it was interesting watching Tenet over the summer going back to the prestige and being like, oh, it feels like he's trying to tap in to kind of the gotcha moments that the prestige has, which I think works in this film because, you know, part of it's based on, on a book, um, that kind of is dealing with these sort of timelines and diary reading. And I think it's just a very clear story that he's telling and not getting lost in many, many other elements like um, many later Chris Nolan movies <laughs> tend to that's feature. The, that's the thing. I think when Nolan is tied to either an adaptation of a story that's already been written or a historic narrative that actually happened, like when he does the fractured timeline device in Dunkirk, I thought it was really wonderful and and it worked really well and it was really tight. So it's like if he just has something that was written or uh, happened in real life to at least be bound by, I think his fractured narr narrative and sort of experiments with timelines can can function really well. No, Christina, hearing you say that is just making me think about some of my criticisms of some of his original his originally written pieces. Where you're, yeah, it, that's kind of nail on the head, I think, is that like with his original works, there there tends to be this like desire to have a grander thing going on that's this complicated and difficult to understand. But ultimately, those things fall short of how confusing the construction of the timelines of them are, as opposed to this, where it's it's a more uh, it's it's got some surprises and stuff, but it is a more like established conventional trajectory that doesn't 
fancy itself like hyper involved in the same way. I don't know. It's it's difficult to describe. D- describing Nolan's going to be tough for me throughout this episode. But yeah, I think well, that really hints towards something. It's somebody else aside from either Nolan or his brother who has already crafted mm-hmm. this story, and so they must like draw from that and then be like, oh, let's put our own sort of. Uh, spin on this particular story. I'll say that I was really pleasantly surprised by this movie. I thought that uh, the visual style and the fractured narrative really, really did not feel gimmicky, but contributed to the elements of like cinematic sleight of hand. You know, you have a story about magic. It's about deflection, distraction, lots of moving pieces. And so I think that this completely works uh, as an approach uh, to jump timelines, to to jump from perspectives, character character to character, and I really thought that really enhanced the the magic of it and connected the actual movie to what the per, the actors and the characters are trying to achieve as magician stage performers. Until and I see you have this in your notes, Connor. Until the ending, which completely deflates, I think a movie that has tons of wonderful payoffs and tightly fits everything together and pulls things out from underneath, like expectations out from underneath you. It just the, that whole long conversation between the two at the end, just completely deflated, but we'll get to that. I'm willing to forgive the movie for its explain explanations of, you know, what you've just witnessed. Yeah, I totally agree with Sam. Watching uh, Jackman and Bale play off of one another was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, uh, like, sorry, illusionist. That's something that's a chapter of my past. I'll have to put to put to bed. I think also Rufus Sewell is like the uh, the emperor. I was always like, ooh, Rufus Sewell, bad guy. Didn't even work for me this this go around. So, you know, we change. We all change. We we mature. <laughs> Maybe this is my magical maturation. <laughs> Speaking of magical maturation, let's dive into, I thought a good place to start would be kind of taking a look at the two main characters, our two sort of protagonists slash antagonists um, of the movie, Angiers and Borden, played by Hugh Jackman, and Christian Bale. Um, these two men are the backbone of the film. Um, you guys know I like structure. I'm interested in structure. That's why I think I'm drawn to a lot of Nolan movies is that he's at least trying interesting things and seeing sort of the, the rise in some ways of these two magicians, but we're also cutting between later in their careers. Ultimately the film's about these two magicians trying to one up each other. Uh, and the film opens in a pretty dramatic way of, we see the end of the movie at the beginning what a trope, right? Um, so we see the we've end. Been here before, Nolan. <laughs> we, we've been here before. Uh, we yeah, see yeah. basically uh, Angier's dying. You know, he he you know falls into a um, like the drown like the water case. I can't think of the name of it. Um, the the glass case full of water with do the water tricks. The tank is there a the tank the water tank? water tank oh. water tank. I couldn't <laughs> is this <laughs> special water? <laughs> I had a total brain fart. The water tank. Uh, the industry Jackman. term in the magic industry is tank. Tank. <laughs> um, and so Hugh Jackman, Andrews is drowning. Borden, Bale tries to save him. It's revealed that, you know, 
Borden's then put on trial for the murder of Angiers. And so he has his, he gets his diary, Angiers' diary, and that's what sort of kicks off the whole film. We jump backward in time to when these two men are basically starting their career by serving Michael Caine, Mr. Cutter, who is you know, designing these illusions um, and these magical acts. And I just think these are two really fascinating characters. And in my notes here, I put, you know, feel sort of very like Shakespearean drama, Greek tragedy. These aren't, in my mind, not necessarily like real people. We don't see you know, there's some criticisms of the film is that it's sort of paper thin uh, in terms of character motivation. Uh, these are characters who are dealing with obsession, who are dealing um, with trying to be successful. And the film goes into, you know, when it happens, you know, when obsession turns into revenge, the nature of success. And so I just it all feels very epic kind of presentation. And I just think these performances are just totally stand out um, with Angiers, who sort of, you know, he changed his name, puts on this American accent to kind of, so his family doesn't to be associated with his theatrical endeavors um, as sort of as the great Danton is this sort of higher class um, showman when Borden is sort of, he goes, is known by the professor later, some sort of classism, you know, working class kind of element. He doesn't really put on that good of a show, but he's a better magician. And so I just wanted to open up with thoughts on these two characters and how we see them interact throughout the film and their race, uh, basically to the bottom of who is the better magician and who is more successful in life. I'd say that, uh, first of all, the, the premise of competitively dueling and saboteuring magicians is amazing. That's an awesome idea. Yeah, I mean, the way the film plays out, like it, you know, it, it, it hands over results like throughout the movie, these, these ways of one-upping each other that are either like outright dangerous or just like really like really snarky and just like rude to each other. Borden uh, sabotaging the transporting, the, or the new transporting man when he uh, he pulls the like um, the stunt pad out from the trap door and Jackman's just messed up. And then rather than having like the double that he's hired, uh, Jackman's tired. I'm just going to use their actor names because I don't remember. Uh, Jackman's uh, double coming up to complete the trick. He comes up himself and is like, hey, folks. Well, he's more like, hey, folks, I've got a better magic show across the street. And... Um, so that that whole that whole element is great. I, I think the way that they butt heads is really great and really earned because of their backstory, and really earned in a way that like you know they're they're constantly it's it they feel as though, or at least Jackman feels as though he's constantly being screwed over by this one person who resents him, which obviously becomes more complex as it goes because of the ways in which he's meddled with by this theoretically one person, and just their different drives. Yeah, one being completely dedicated to. A, a version of the a, a respect of the craft that is rooted in sacrifice and the other rooted in spectacle and obsession and those two driving motivations between these two characters as their butting heads as almost equals makes it like it, it's a powder keg of interesting story potential and i think the story itself is is pretty wild yeah i mean i think that Jackman and Bale are such incredible, phenomenal actors. I love them both. And this was the first movie I can 
ever remember where I was like actively rooting against Hugh Jackman. That he's mm-hmm. Wolverine. That never happens. But I just could not stand that character so much. And Dave, I think that goes um, to to the point that you just made is that Bale's character was all about the craft. Truly, truly, it was rather than just an obsession with one dude and and his revenge. And you know, like I. With the ending of the movie, and I, I I can't stop thinking about whether or not he knew what um, Bale's character knew, which not he tied uh, with that's I guess it's like the catalyst of this rivalry of whether or not Bale's character is responsible for Hugh Jackman's wife's death. And I, I just could not stop thinking about that. Is, is that worth like dedicating your entire life to one upping this dude? Or should you just like worry about yourself bruh like you know like that's what I kept thinking about the whole movie and I mean like that's that's what the movie was trying to make you do so I think that it's really successful in that way well it's kind of like Jackman's character watches as Bale's character builds a family uh also gets married has a child seems to have this like domestic life that Jackman is like oh that was I could never fulfill uh, fulfill that because you caused my wife's death. So I think that was sort of uh, watching, you know, his rival get the things, sort of the familial things he wanted, may, like may created that deep rooted resentment. But when Dave, when you'd mentioned this idea of like sacrifice versus spectacle as a way to kind of think about Bale as Borden's approach and Jackman as uh, Angier's approach to life, to magic. And then Sam, when you were saying like by the end, oh, I was like rooting for uh, for Bale and wanting Hugh Jackman to go down. And you kind of find yourself being like, hmm, who am I rooting for? But I think they're equally as they equally uh, are awful people I mean or or at least behave in in ways that are not only destructive to themselves but other people it's like yes I wanted to see Hugh Jackman go down but at the same time really the pain that he causes is really only to himself and I guess the, the fractured versions of himself whereas Christian Bale causes the pain and ultimate death of pretty much everyone around him because of, you know, we come to learn his also sort of uh, fractured identity, which is, you know, him having a brother or whatever. Um, And so I I think the movie does a great job of really not standing by the side of either one of them, but really, I think, really has them duel on an equally, on an equal playing field where you're kind of like, wow, both of them are pretty much pieces of shit. <laughs> yeah, I think that's there's a moral ambiguity here at play big time. I mean, like uh, yeah, I mean Jackman like, you know, as as we've alluded to, like, you know, we see him seeing uh Bale's character, which turns out, I mean, spoiler alert, is is his characters, which is important, sort of establish this domesticity that he longed for and was in a sense uh deprived of because of that accident that was Bale's responsibility. Uh, he also, though, is presented with like uh, uh, he's he's brought to the verge of establishing that domesticity for himself. I mean, um, 
Scarlett Johansson as his assistant is like, you're hey, totally you know, I love right. you. We yeah. can totally do a thing. But like, you're also right in the sense that like, because Bale is kind of two characters, you can kind of judge it in two different ways. There is, there's the family man who is dedicated in, to, to his wife and so on. There is the other one that's a little bit more bold and a little bit more like showy, I guess, or, or, or a little bit more rambunctious and like unpredictable, but does fall in love with Scarlett Johansson. And they both try to establish their own kind of domesticity, but neither can see it through because they've, sacrifice that kind of experience and that kind of life to living a half-life via their performance so yeah in the end like neither neither three of these guys are really admirable people which i think makes it all the more interesting only the doppelganger comes out smelling like roses (laughs) and really quickly jackman playing both of those parts because bale obviously plays both of his parts they're twins but seeing jackman somehow have the physicality of someone who isn't him playing his double. Like I had to look it up. So I was like, who is this guy? Yeah. And it turns out it's just him. It's an incredible performance or dual performance on his part. When watching the movie this time, I really, I feel like honed in on the theme of like fractured identity. And I think what the prestige does really well is tying in premise um, themes the structure, the writing, like everything feels to serve itself. Like magicians are stage performers. Um, They have this dual identity. You have Robert Angiers, who is already a a new identity from the name that he was born with, which his wife comments on at the beginning of the movie. He's already playing a part. And then he's also the great Danton. You have Christian and Hugh Jackman himself also playing a, you know, um, his drunk doppelganger who just happens to look like him. Christian Bale, who is living the act, which is a, a theme and an idea that's brought up. Living this half-life, as as we've talked about, he's, you know, um, Alfred Borden is he's twins. It's two men sharing one life. And there's this Mr. Fallon character who never speaks. And um, as I was watching the movie with Alyssa, she saw it years ago and kind of, you know, forgot kind of how it, ends and was like how come he never says anything does he say one line of dialogue so looking back that's like a little funky of like this mr fallon character is just kind of a nothing presence but we learn a little bit more about you know why that's the way it is and so just really honing in on like who people losing themselves whether it's to the lives that they're living the lies that they're living and what they're trying to achieve and who they'll push out of their way um, to achieve these things and not really thinking about the ramifications of their actions, just sort of losing themselves in an inception-like way, you know, the rabbit hole of all these different personalities. So the idea of fractured identity is one for this rewatch, I feel like I was honing in a lot on. And, and we talked about that when we talked about in and of itself and like how the whole point of Del Gaudio's performance is to talk about like identity and in many ways, at the end of the day, holding secrets that, uh, you know, somebody might never find out about or uh, that you might never reveal as a stage performer. Uh, and yeah, like, I think it's interesting because he, Delgadio consulted on the prestige and like taught a lot of, uh, Hugh Jack- taught Hugh Jackman a lot of like sleight of hand tricks and like gave him technique. Uh, advice and stuff for the movie, which I think this movie also does a wonderful job of like close-ups of the actors themselves doing a lot of sleight of hand stuff, which I thought was really, really fun to watch. You're like, yeah, that's Bale doing that. Yeah, that's Jackman actually doing that. I'm sure editing helped a lot, but those close-ups were really, really fun. One element that 
of filmmaking that I think really adds to the portrayal of these characters, the portrayal of the magic actions is how it was shot. Uh, it's a period piece that was shot largely handheld. Um, so getting in real close, um, the sets, this is all filmed pretty much, I think all filmed in Los Angeles and some stuff in Colorado. Um, so none of it was filmed in England. They all picked places that would look like you would find them in Victorian era England. And so Nolan used a lot of natural lighting and scenes hand, hand camera. So I think all of that just adds to this lived in world and that we're really getting a chance to examine these men that were not far off, like the audience in the stage, we're in them and we're in their lives. I guess the next question I had was thoughts on the twist of Borden being actually a set of twins because a big mystery and really what drives Angiers throughout the film is how does Borden perform the uh, transported man trick? Like, and Michael Caine tells him it has to be simple. Throughout the film, we're told, always hold on to secrets and that once you reveal the secret, you're worthless. Like nobody will care. And that oftentimes the answer is disappointing to the trick. It's all about the suspense of how did it happen and sort of tricking yourself to believe. And so uh, Jackman's character goes down this rabbit hole of how does this transport a man work? And the answer in sort of Shakespearean fashion, uh, fashion is in front of him the whole time, but he can't see it because of his own hubris and his own, um, obsession. And so we do reveal that it is pretty simple. It is, he is a twin, uh, twins living just one life together. So thoughts on a twist that I think on paper could read as kind of dumb, but I think for me in the film was, you know, worked really well. So thoughts on that twist in a movie filled with twists and turns. I think Bale really earns, Bale earns it because he does do such a good job throughout the film upon watching it for a second time, clearly playing a set of twins living one life, right? Like there are moments where he is, you know, very loving to his his wife and family and very dismissive of the uh, the assistant, Charles Johansson, who is, um, has kind of swooped in. Uh, and he's, he's seemingly having this affair with, and by contrast, sometimes he's very welcoming to her and very dismissive of his family. And it shows what lengths the two brothers as characters go to to live that double life and the sacrifices that they make, whether that be literally like whether that whether that be abandoning the loves of their lives or like literally chopping parts of their body off of each other to be a perfect match is I is I think where I keep returning to that that notion of while I don't think the Bale brothers, as I'll I'll term them for convenience's sake, the well, the Borden brothers. Uh, if we're going to go by the story, are, are good people necessarily in their their slavish dedication to living a lie for the service of their craft. It is based in sacrifice, as opposed to Jackman, whose is based in competition and obsession and comes at the cost of on, only killing versions, re- repeated versions and clones of himself, but actually killing people. And that's a big thing in the movie, right? Like the big the big thing that, that uh, Kane keeps stressing is like, sooner or later, you're going to have to get your hands dirty. Like magic is a business where you will have to make these kind of sacrifices. And it seems to be the kind of thing that Borden innately understands in sacrificing his life to service of his craft, as opposed to Jackman, who is so obsessed with how to do it, that he will go to any ends, even if it means killing other people. I don't know. Like it's, and it's again, a very blurred morality because I think both of them are unethical characters, but it's, it's interesting in that way. And I love pairing what we ultimately see as Jackman's approach to the uh, transporting man being just killing duplicates of himself over and over. I love how the movie pairs that 
with scenes earlier of magicians just crushing birds mm-hmm. on a table. And that kind of foreshadows not only what Jackman will do, but it also, yeah, sort of reveals an approach that some magicians are literally going to kill bird after bird for the sake of a magic trick. Yes, it's getting their hands dirty, but yeah, what are the sort of ethical concerns? Like, yeah, they're basically raising huge ethical considerations of what the sacrifice is required in order to achieve this type of magic trick. And yeah, the scene with the boy recognizing that the bird actually was crushed by that sort of amateur magician and being like, what happened to his brother? And the, the kid was so insightful, he could see or like could see that and then bail wit or board and witnesses the kid being so perceptive while he's watching the magic trick. What I think was great about that scene. And Christine, you're right. There's a lot of really great foreshadowing throughout the film, both in chronology of kind of what happens in their lives and through Nolan's editing um, and the structure of the script is that the kid sees through the magic and is upset by the brutal reality of what happens, which is brought up all the way and multiple times, but really hit home on the end at the end, at the end of the movie of where the world is kind of simple. A character it's brutal. There's a brutal simplicity. I think that's Jackman's line, um, that people suffer. That's just kind of how the world works. And magic allows people to believe that maybe it's not all suffering. Um, and so I just love how this movie interweaves so many moments of thematic relevance, um, important things that I think that movies can really be power, powerful messages, while with character interactions, with the story, with what's going on in the setting. Like, it's just really bobs and weaves all these different themes and ideas really expertly. After you have all just given such like deep, beautiful, um, just, just wonderful meaning to this movie. Can I tell you my non deep read of how I knew what the twist was? And I was like, Oh, I'm not surprised. And then I'll tell you what I did gasp at. Um, so the disguises were terrible. They were so bad. And I like laughed out loud the very first time I saw Hugh Jackman dressed as like that old man when he goes to shoot Bale's fingers off at like their the, the first meeting after um, Jackman's wife is killed. And I was like, that's terrible. And then we see Fallon for the first time. And I like, I saw through it immediately. And okay, what so I- you, yeah, you immediately detected that that, Immediately. Was a disguise rather than a character because when when Jackman comes up on stage, he's clearly disguised because we know Jackman's there. Mm-hmm. But you saw through Fallon as Bale's brother immediately. Immediately, Fallon looks shady as shit. He did. <laughs> yeah, it's <was> like <laughs> he did, and I was like, "What the fuck?" So then I started like paying like real attention. Here's what when I was actually convinced. Um, David Bowie I knew David Bowie was in it and then he comes out as Tesla and I was like that's fucking David Bowie so I was like so this movie can disguise people (laughs) and yet it's not doing a good job in this moment and in this moment so obviously I need to pay attention here Um, and then uh, Rebecca Hall when she says do you love me? It's true today, but some days it's not. And I was like, fuck it, I know it. And um, there's one other thing that Scarlett Johansson says. She talks about him wearing a glove. She's like, you shouldn't. You should be proud of this. And I was like, there's only one reason why that motherfucker's wearing a glove. 
that's because the other one doesn't have that. And then, you know, it's, it's different, obviously, because he does chop his fingers off. Um, so like the, the disguises didn't work for me. Um, I think it's just because I think that Christian Bale has a very recognizable face. He's a, he's got a particular pout that I'm sorry. <laughs> like when you spend so long looking at him as Batman, you just kind of can't like not see him in other disguises. What I did gasp at though was the the journal <laughs> the journal switch. So you know you have Jackman getting the journal and being like I stole this and blah 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 blah, and then you get to the end and Bale had like been like and as you're reading this blah 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 and I was like oh that's sick and then Bale's reading Jackman's journal and then he does the same thing and I went oh, no <laughs> that's what caught me those were moments where I was like did the movie even need that though I felt like the journal reveals it's like oh I'm talking to you from this stolen journal I felt like that was a little bit like cheap even though, because the movie had already pieced together so many amazing turns that I was kind of like, is this adding, I mean, it's definitely adding like a, oh, they're on to each other element. But at this point, we know that they're constantly on to each other. But I don't, yeah, I don't know. I just like a good heist. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely felt like a moment in a heist movie where it's like, ooh, somebody on the inside is about to like, screw over the whole team and it's like that's the big reveal but i think for me i think the journals are a little silly i think they're great reveals and i think it it works really well for uh jackman's character i think that moment's great when the whole journal's a trick to get him to go to colorado to see tesla nikola tesla because that's the you know he thinks that this man of science was able to construct something for uh, Borden, even though that's all a fabrication and a lie. So I thought like that reveal worked well. And I think. But how did, how did Borden know about Tesla? Through the world's, not the world's fair. Uh, remember the science oh, exposition? When he, oh, right. When he went there and saw him. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Keep and going, so, Connor. And so I thought that was like a, a clever move to like kind of distract him and to get him away. One question that I have is. And Jackman brings this up, says, well, you, what do you mean? Like, you never built this thing for him? And it's like, I don't know, like Tesla never built a machine for Borden. I was like, I feel like that would have came up. But that's one of the few kind of holes in this movie that uh, even though it's somewhat addressed by Andy Serkis' character, I, I don't know, a little bit of a hole. Uh, but while we're here, I think let's talk about what I think is awesome casting as David Bowie as Nikola Tesla. Um, and then also his partner, Andy Serkis, who's always a delight to see pop up in smaller roles in films. I thought this was an interesting angle to put the movie in, like the current war between uh, Tesla and Edison. Uh, yes, played into that, that came to mind big time this time watching it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's when this, I love the kind of sudden sci-fi elements of the movie. Um, I know the, uh, there's a lot of critics who said that they didn't like this kind of like abrupt kind of sci-fi introduction, but I think it played so well into the idea of, technological progress and society changing and the idea of like if people thought that the illusions that they were doing were real like sawing an actual woman in half they'd scream uh but it's all about kind of this um disbelief this collective disbelief that we want to have but then when real people real scientists 
want to try to like change the world. It can only happen once in a while because people get freaked out, uh, like Nikola Tesla talks about. So I thought that was a really great kind of peppering in real world what was happening at the time into this film and making it bigger than just the world of magic, but thinking about societal progress as a whole. And the scene where when um, there's he's Jackman standing in the field with Andy Serkis and all the light bulbs light up is like such a beautiful shot um, outside the compound. Also says a lot too about like the difference between their personalities, like Borden will, he'll go to the trouble of like, you know, living half a life with his twin brother in order to maintain this illusion as opposed to Hugh Jackman, who Jackman's character, uh, who when he is going to keep happening when he's unable to unriddle it himself and getting this false tip to go see Tesla is like, well, I don't know. Fuck it. This is a guy of science. Clearly he's got some kind of answer. And it's like, it's like willing to cheat magic itself via science to like achieve his ends of like spectacle. And and that's such a tremendous cost as we learn. That's and cost like financial cost too. It's like not only is Jackman going to science, he's throwing a sh- bunch of money at this project. And I I thought it would have been really funny because you you end up seeing Jackman's character go to Tesla's laboratory and watch Tesla try to work through the kinks in this transporting machine and fail multiple times until he then walks out and realizes that it had worked the whole time. And instead of transporting, he was just making duplicates that appear in a completely different part of the property. I thought it would have been funny though, if ultimately that was the magic trick and Tesla was like, ha, fuck you. Like I staged this whole thing so that you would just throw a shit ton of money at me. I could leave Colorado Springs, peace out. And then you're left with this useless machine. But maybe that's another movie. Turns out Tesla is the secret genius magician between the three. He's just like the one. He's like the ultimate like omniscient magician, just watching these amateurs duke it out and kill each other over nothing. And he's like, I have the true, the ultimate magic trick. I do have one really quick question concerning um, Jackman's trick is is that this machine, it, it, it creates duplicates, as we know. And it seems as though based on the way this story unravels that the way it works is he he stands on this this contraption that creates the duplicate. He himself is transported about 50 yards away, and then the created duplicate falls through a trapdoor into this tank of water and is killed as a way of like bumping off the complication of having cloned yourself and, and being able to continue with your own life in 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 advancing that aim. But the at one point in at the end when he's shot and he's confronting Bale, he, he mentions that it takes courage to stand on that stage and not know whether or not I'm going to fall into it or be the man across the theater because no one cares about the man that drowned. So what are the rules there? Like, were there versions of this where, like, maybe the Jackman we get at the end of the movie is, like, the fifth clone because via the odds he happened to drop so many of them and make it? Or, like, how does that work? Yeah, I loved that ambiguity. I was wondering a similar thing where it's like, like consciousness wise, where is he? But I think that was also the point, especially when Michael Caine tells that story again about the drowning sailor. Oh, it's so good, yeah. 
at the beginning of the movie, he's like at the funeral of Jackman's character's wife's, uh, like his wife's funeral. He's like, oh, this story about a sailor who was basically drowning and about to die and had like lost consciousness for five minutes. And the feeling was like going home. And, and that's it, a sympathetic version. And then right, at the end. Like, at the end, he repeats the same story and is like, I lied. In fact, the sailor said it was pure agony. And so I, I loved that detail connecting to the questions as to whether Hugh Jackman was feeling the pain of drown of some p- fraction of himself or portion of himself repeatedly drowning night after night after doing this trick. I was OK that the movie wasn't necessarily setting a strict uh, set of rules to follow as far as how that transporting man trick works. I was totally fine with that and thought the ambiguity makes it even more eerie and scary. Cause you know, it doesn't really even go into, into the science of what's actually happening. There's no scene where Tesla's like, this is exactly what I'm doing. As you can see, the electricity is being channeled through these two. And there's no explanation. And honestly, that was great. I was an audience member willing to be swept away by the illusion, so to speak. Yeah, I guess I bring it up, not as a criticism, but as a question, uh, just across the across the board. But yeah, I think that ambiguity It's terrifying, is, yeah. definitely. I guess I read that as it's always him who's teleported, but he never quite, like, I don't know, like, he, Hugh Jack, Robert Angers is always teleported, but is the one who's teleported kind of like his consciousness moved or was the original consciousness at the beginning drowning? I think it's, I don't know, incredibly existential. And I think he's confused too, is kind of how I read that. Well, because the first time we see him try it and it creates another version of himself without the drop tank, he shoots the other one, but, but he's the one who remains fixed in that position. The other one is created. So that would suggest that every time he's dunking himself and the other one is projected somewhere else. But the reactions that the duplicate has suggests pain. It suggests like when you can, you see the duplicate realizing he's about to be shot. It's exactly Alger or whatever the fuck his name is. Angier's <laughs> reacting. <laughs> and so uh, I think, yeah, it's like, ter- it's scary and terrifying. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It's one of the more interesting elements I'd say. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we've covered a lot of the major beats of this film, a lot of things I really like about it. It sounds like a lot of um, what you guys liked about it as well. Uh, any sort of, you know, we've been going for a little bit, any other kind of thoughts about the prestige or characters or moments or shots that we haven't covered yet that been ruminating with the butter crew? Two quick things, really, I guess that, uh, I mean, we haven't, we haven't really spoken about Kane yet. This has become like the later half of his career, which is, is fine because, he nails it almost every time is that Kane can play a mentor with like charm and wisdom for miles. And he nails it in this movie. I think he's, he's truly fantastic. I think the one thing that is a little bit interesting that I, I did think about was like the beginning of this movie when we get the end of the movie where it's like the trial and Michael Kane as like this magician mentor is basically like telling this jury in this murder trial is like, well, look, if I explain the thing, the trick, then it's going to ruin the whole trick. I can't, I know it's a murder trial. I'm not going to tell you. It's like, next time I'm on trial for anything, I'm going to be like, uh, I'm a magician, by the way. I can't, I can't get into it. 
which I did think was kind of hysterical, but, but Kane is amazing. Yeah. That inversion of like sympathy when he's talking about that sailor story to Jackman at the beginning versus it being more pointed at the end when he sees the lengths that Jackman's character will go to, it really oozes with the same kind of like, it rings with the same kind of like a Nolan-esque writing, the clickety clack, like Nolan writing of like that, that final, um, it turns out it was actually agony. Like that's got the same like tonal gravity as uh, we burn the forest to the ground. Like he know Nolan knows how to use Michael Caine really, really well, pretty much across his filmography. I would add one quick thing that uh, though, yeah, like I like I mentioned before, I feel like it it's a little bit less impressive every time just because of how far it goes to like. When it's when it's that Nolan thing, like the shuffled chronology, makes it inherently difficult to wrangle in all the details. So when you are able to do that on repeat viewings with this movie, all the foreshadowing makes what's going to happen so obvious. Um, like like that whole conversation with the bird, I think it's really brilliant when he's talking. The kid has that response of like, "Oh my god, this no, th- I know the bird's being brought back, but it, it's been killed." Like there's there's a real smartness to that. But then when he goes the extra mile to say, what about his brother? You're right. It's so uh, on the nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like it, it is diminished returns for me in that way where it's like it's showing its hand more and more for a movie that is is kind of about the magic of ambiguity. So in that way, it falls a little bit flat for me a little bit more each time. But I think that's only the case because of Nolan's stylistic, de- stylistic dedication to a fractured non-linear structure because if if it was arranged if the same details are arranged in order it would be glaringly obvious so the first time it's impressive because i'm trying to piece together not only what's going on but the timeline itself and then when i have mastered the timeline with repeat viewings the intricacies of the plot become less interesting or more obvious speaking of the the bird and the brother um one thing we haven't really talked about is the fact that, um, okay, so um, Borden is found guilty for whatever the fuck his name is, um, his murder. And so one of them is hung. How hard must that have been? I presume it was wh- whoever was going backstage of the show that particular night. Um, so we know it's the like the brother who was in love with Scarlett Johansson. And he's just the one that dies. Like, that's shitty. You gotta take your lumps. I guess. Yeah, I think the movie sort of copped out in character, in sort of presenting two brothers, one that's like sort of quote unquote nice or like kinder than the other. It's like you had the family man who clearly cares about his wife, cares about the child. And I think both of them obviously care about the child, but then you have the one who's actually in love with Scarlett Johansson's character who causes his what the wife to think that he's having an affair. So he's sort of like the more of the showman and and has an anger issue, you know, it's like the way the movie presents is an anger issue. And it's got kind some of swagger. Con- yeah. <laughs> it's got some swagger that can turn into like sort of manipulative behavior, especially to the female characters in the movie. And so I think it's convenient that he ultimately becomes the one who dies, which if the movie hadn't necessarily pitted the brothers 
or, or it's created characterizations where you're like, oh, well, one is sort of better than the other. As I said, I think it could have created some even better ambiguity. And to your point, Sam, would have been even more intense thinking about the fact that it was the one who just went to the theater and happened to see Hugh Jackman die. He ultimately is the one that gets hung. It's like, okay, the movie couldn't go as far as to be like, oh, it was just luck or bad luck. It was like, oh no, the the worst of the brothers is the one who ultimately gets what was coming to him. So I didn't, yeah. Because of identical twins, one is always evil. (laughs) So yeah, it's like, yeah, it, it needed to, give the audience some sort of like resolution when no, like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I I think I concur a little more ambiguity there. I think would have been appreciated. And did we, uh, let's just talk about the last scene. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it's like, I don't, it's like you you shot in the gut and you're just and Hugh Jackman's just hanging out there being exposited to, as we reveal that he's been a brother the whole time. I don't know. Like that, that scene, uh, Roger Ebert also said like that totally like undercuts the film. Like he really liked it, but totally like undercuts the whole thing. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it definitely is. I was looking at the runtime. I was like, this probably could have been sped up a little or leave it a little more ambiguity, um, a little more ambiguity. I think we could leave it there, but I do like the end of where you see the line of tanks and all the floating Angiers under there. Like that was a, a, I think a great shot to end the movie on. It's a great payoff to that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just have, you can have Bale shoot him and then you can have a moment of like, gotcha. It's my, when Jackman is like, how did you do it? Borden's like, it was my twin. And then cut to those lines of tanks and the hats. We can have the hat shot, duplicated hat shot too. Fine. And then end the movie. We all get it. I think the movie did a great job of putting the pieces together. It completely, yeah, deflates the whole thing. When you have 10 minutes of dialogue and you're like, oh, turn this off. Or you can even just clean it up. Like, just just shave it down. Like, make it cleaner. Just like, you know, he, he pulls the gun on Jackman. Jackman is astonished because I know you were hung today. It's like, oh, my brother was. And then he blasts him. Like, then you have all the answers in one line. Although, there, I mean, there is, like, something to going back over, like, all these details and, like, laying them out for you that I think makes sense because this timeline is so fractured, you know, the whole Nolan thing in a normal movie, it wouldn't have been as necessary. So I think there's a reason it's there. I think this movie does because of how Nolan has complicated the structure of a complicated story. It does help to have that exposition at the end, Mm -hmm. but it perhaps does go on a little bit too long. And it just feels very dramatic. Of I am shot on my knees, helpless to the person who killed me, he having him talk to me and I am befuddled and I fall and the lantern breaks and the theater gets set on fire. And in his last like throws, as he's been shot in the stomach, one of the more painful wounds you can suffer as a person is just like, didn't you see their faces? It's like, just die already. Come on, you've already been shot. Let's speed this up. <laughs> I did like the scene, the re- the return to Michael Caine, telling the the three parts of a magic trick, because the blah, the blah, and the prestige, I'm Michael Caine. And then we get that again, and then the, pre- the true prestige is Borden coming and taking the daughter away, and you're like, okay, things are resolved, it's, it's going to be fine. Um, I did appreciate that end. A lot going on in this movie. 
there's a lot going on. I, I think the end is pretty satisfying too. Just speed it up, speed your death up a little. We get it. Jackman does uh, anguish so well though. That's true. He does. All right. Well, we covered a lot. Still even more. I mean, we could probably go on for another hour talking about the prestige, but I think we should probably start wrapping it up now. Any kind of final thoughts as we are finishing our discussion on our very first Nolan movie? I think a lot of the notes I provided make it sound like I'm very uh, dismissively critical of this movie. I think it's a it's a it's a really good movie. I think it's one of his stronger ones. I've got my feelings about Nolan and his uh, his 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 fractured timelines and chronologies. I think this is one where it maybe detracts from it a little bit, but I think that the everything else about his execution is so impressive that I'm willing to to let it slide because I think their performances are stellar. The direction and cinematography is kind of a knockout. It's editing could use some work, but that's again tied to his script and his structure. So on the whole, yeah, I, I think it's um it's better than the illusionist. That's ultimately I think with the decision we have to come down on. Is it better than the illusionist? I would say yes. God, it is, and I'm so ashamed, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I think that was one of our first conversations we had, Christine, when playing the podcast. I was like, oh, I'd love to do the Prestige one day. And you're like, oh, I love the Illusionist more. <laughs> I think I remember that. <laughs> well, I tried, and I couldn't even get through the Illusionist. I turned it off halfway. I was like, ah, this is just not, not working for me. Do you guys want to hear some final fun facts? Some trivia? Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. All right. So this is the big one. The editing includes, according to IMDb, 146 time jump cuts. <laughs> in which the next shot either flashes back or skips ahead to another time period of the story. This averages almost one timeline jump per minute of the two hour and I think 10, 13 minute movie. Another fact, Sam Mendes, who um, this the prestige he wanted to be his follow-up to american beauty uh, he also directed skyfall in 1917 um really wonderful films um and so he really wanted to do this but uh christopher priest was kind of on board but then um somebody one of nolan's people delivered a vhs copy of following via motorcycle straight to priest's house uh, memento was still in pre-production and priest was so impressed with following that he chose nolan he also wanted to support a new filmmaker over an established one in mendez so uh sam mendez version of the prestige would be interesting have you seen the following i haven't that that's been on my list for a while pretty interesting is that the al pacino one no that's insomnia which is also very good um no, no it's, it's it's first early black and white it's a short film got it oh yes that one yes yes uh, the last fact I have is that Alfred Borden's infant child uh, was portrayed by um, Chris Nolan, one of Chris Nolan's kids. So bringing the uh, bringing the family in. Well, that is the prestige. I hope you enjoyed the Michael Caine impressions, our attempt to break down this film without painstakingly going through 146 jump cuts as talking through it um, and hope you enjoyed us breaking down our first Chris Nolan movie. I am sure that we will revisit Nolan. Uh, sometime in the future if you have any chris nolan picks that you are dying for us to cover except for tenet i will not talk about tenet i do like i refuse <laughs> oh i absolutely hate a tenet but maybe maybe that's a big think, butter blowout i don't think i could talk about inception just re-watching that this year it was just kind of rough <laughs> are we all team inception i like inception 
That hallway fight's I think awesome. It's a, I think it's a visually beautiful movie that uh, is horribly written. Uh, Interstellar, I'll talk about. I fucking love that movie. It's a terrible first 20 minutes, but the rest, it's just like, let's get into space. Well, be sure to share your Chris Nolan opinions with us on Instagram at Butter With That, Facebook, Butter With That, Twitter, Butter With That One, and our email is butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free. I would love to hear thoughts on The Prestige, thoughts on Nolan. I'm happy to cover him in the future, except for Tenant. But um, <laughs> no, if, if Dave, if you really do unpick Tenant one day, I'll be happy to revisit it. I'll go in with an open mind. And maybe the second time through, we'll... Uh, change my mind the only way we're going to be able to do it i'll record my, we'll record the episode and i'll reverse your parts and okay. then it'll and, it. and then it'll make as much sense as the movie does uh can i be the blue team then that's the yeah the blue team right yeah yeah that uh yeah yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> uh we'll have a good whatever and uh we'll, we'll catch you next week for a new theme can't wait to can't wait for you to hear what it is 